Thank you, Melinda. Go ahead and get in your Bible to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Tonight is our uh, final lesson on the book of Philippians, and I've uh, been going through it verse by verse. This is our 22nd message. Did I hear thunder off in the distance uh, earlier? Uh, we may get to test our new system out. Uh, actually, the lights to the platform, all the sound system, all the speaker, and everything in the sound booth is on a battery backup. And so, allegedly, <laughs> if the power goes out, all that stuff will stay on, the emergency lights will come on in there, and we'll just be able to keep going like nothing happened. We meant to test it, we really did, but just never got around to it. Um, sooner or later, we will test it. Uh, because it's going to happen, and uh, Joe, did uh, Matt talk to you tonight about taking attendance? W would you mind doing that, uh, if you would, please? I didn't see um, him anywhere. Uh, Lord willing, uh, we will uh, go on to the book of Colossians next. Uh, I kind of like to mix up, mix up the, sort, the styles that I teach with. Sometimes, you know, uh, I like to teach verse by verse. Uh, other times, I like to teach series or uh, topic by topic. Uh, you and I live in a day and age when uh, people are walking around saying that if you don't teach the Bible verse by verse, you're not preaching and teaching the Bible, and that sounds real spiritual until you look at all the examples in the New Testament, and by that definition, Jesus or Paul or Peter never preached a sermon. You, there are no examples, not one sermon where somebody preached the word verse by verse, and certainly no examples when they were picking out three, four original words and talking about the language. That's, that's all uh, made up extra biblical stuff. And, uh, and so I like to mix it, mix it up. It certainly is preaching the word when you go bar verse by verse, but stop trying to tell me that uh, preaching Bible topics is not preaching and teaching. Uh, when I taught last Wednesday, uh, we talked about learning to be content. Uh, we talked about Paul's example. Uh, he was so confident in his good example that he exhorted believers to follow what he had taught them and modeled for them. Uh, our example matters to the Lord. Our example matters to people around us. Uh, we talked about the generosity that the Philippian church had with the Apostle Paul on several uh, occasions. And that church there had supported him financially as a missionary. And on several occasions when he was nearby in Thessalonica and now that he was over 4,500 miles away in jail in Rome, uh, they had sent him a gift again. And we talked about Paul's contentment with what uh, is a famous Bible promise when he said, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. We talked about what that verse primarily referred to. We spent time talking about how it can be rightly applied and how it can be misapplied as well. And tonight... As we close out this great book, we arrive at another Bible promise that's pretty familiar uh, among biblical Christians. Uh, there's probably no one here tonight who doesn't believe that God is able to supply the needs of His people or of His churches. But far fewer of us are familiar with how God supplies the needs of His people. Uh, I think people generally have the idea that God sort of just drops a bag of money down the chimney. Which brings up a good question, how does God 
provide for his people. Uh, if you'd stand tonight, if you're able to stand in honor of God's word to tell him I thought is God will supply all our needs through Christ. God will supply all our needs through Christ. Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, where we left off last time. Uh, but I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an order of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Thank you. you might be seated. After rejoicing in the generous offering the church of Philippi had sent him to uh, through Epaphrodites there in Rome, notice Paul begins by talking about God promising to supply their need. And what is one of the famous Bible promises in verse 19? My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. It seems as if in giving to Paul, the Philippian believers, at least in some cases, now uh, had some of their own needs who were in some way jeopardy of being met. Uh, by the way, it's a wonderful thing to give sacrificially to the work of Christ, to give sacrificially to people trying to do the Lord's work. I hope if you're somebody who carries a wallet that you've been sometime or someplace where you just emptied it and gave it to somebody because God moved you uh, to do so. It's a wonderful thing uh, on occasions when God moves our heart to sacrificially give. In fact, you may remember Jesus watching the people uh, give at the temple in Jerusalem. And in the story, they were watching and some richer people put in a lot and a poor widow put in two mites. And Jesus made the remark that she had given more because she had given of her penury. That means of her living. And Jesus commended that sacrificial giving. If we knew the rest of the story of that widow, what we would do is we would be reading about how God gave her more than those two mites somehow, some way, because she had sacrificially given to her father. Listen, God as a loving father supplying the needs of his children, it doesn't surprise anyone. Listen, earthly parents whose love and loyalty are always flawed to a degree, they make sure the needs of their children are met to whatever degree they're able to do so. But when we think about God supplying all of our need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus, listen, God's riches are not measurable by earthly standards. I think everybody here, or most everyone here, understands that they pave the road of the city of God with gold. And that road's at least 1,400 miles long. Uh, that city that is over 1,400 miles square, every one of the 12 foundations of that city are adorned with precious gems. Uh, such are the riches of our Father in heaven. And the Bible describes even the earth itself and everything and everyone on it belonging to God, our Creator. Listen, the wealth of Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and uh, Elon Musk combined are impressive on earth, but they are nothing. 
compared to God's riches in glory. Listen, it is possible to ask too much of some people. But it is not possible to ask too much of our God to supply some need that we have. I've reminded, I've asked the Lord for some big things. And uh, I always remind myself in the Lord, Lord, I'm asking you. Lord, you have everything belongs to you. All of God's riches and glory are available to mankind by Christ Jesus. I hope you understand that all the love of God toward mankind flows down and funnels toward mankind through the Lord Jesus Christ. All of God's provision for mankind and God's people in particular flows down to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the centerpiece of both God's love and His riches in glory and the supply of that to us. Listen, tonight, if Jesus Christ is not yet your Savior... I can't think of a better night to trust Him. Uh, listen, to place your faith in Him instead of any church, any organization, any good deed, any religious work you have ever done, to come with empty hands to Calvary and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have nothing to offer you for my eternal life. Please forgive me. I trust Christ. God forgives everyone who does that. But hear me when I say if you reject Christ and die in your sins, you will have missed the narrow opening on the bottom of that funnel to the love of God and to the provision of God in, his, in our lives. We'll come back in a few moments to this thought about God supplying all our needs and according to His riches and glory by Christ. Before we do that, though, Paul is ready to move on with the last drops of ink from his pen. In fact, in all Paul does, he consistently wants a few things. Notice in verse 20, Paul wanted God glorified with everything he did and everything he wrote. Verse 20, he says, Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, whether free or jailed, Paul wanted God glorified. Whether he was suffering and needy, or having plenty, Paul had learned to be content so that God would be glorified in his attitude. You may remember from chapter 1 where people were preaching Christ when he was in jail, some because they had been emboldened by Paul's faith, and others because they were trying to add extra bondage or extra time to his imprisonment. And Paul says, whether Christ is preached in truth or in pretense, therein do I rejoice. So how could he do that? He wanted God's glory in everything he did. Paul was okay with him decreasing as long as Christ increased. I hope you understand tonight there is a big difference in believers who want God glorified in their life and those who are far more careless with their testimony. You see, people who are looking for God's glory, they don't ask questions like, why can't I chew tobacco? Uh, why can't I have a glass of wine with my dinner in a restaurant? They, they, for God's glory, don't want their behavior to ever be misunderstood or ever have some poor reflection on Christ. You see, people looking for God's glory, they don't ask questions like, why can't I get a tattoo? 
or what's wrong with rock music. You see, those are the wrong questions for anybody who loves God. When you love God, you ask different questions than, why can't I, why can't I, why can't I, what's wrong with this? You don't ask questions like that. You ask different questions. You ask higher questions. You ask better questions. Questions like, what will glorify Christ more? You know, that question really settles a lot of issues for us today, practically speaking, uh, as well. By the way, I hope you ask that question. When you're considering what you're going to do in life and what you're not going to do in life, I hope you ask the question, what will glorify Christ more? It really changes our outlook. Do you want God glorified in your marriage? Do you want God glorified in how you handle your children? Do you want God glorified in how you treat other people? Do you want God glorified in your ministry? Do you want God glorified at Bible Baptist Church? Do you want God glorified in your family? Do you want God glorified in your workplace? Do you ever ask the question, what will glorify Christ more? It changes how we interact with the people around us when we're, okay, what would glorify Christ more in this decision? Most of the time, our decisions, they're literally just about us. Paul wasn't like that. As he closed out this letter to this dear group of believing people, he wanted God glorified. And may God help all of us to seek His glory before we seek our own and more than we seek our own glory instead of doing what we feel like doing. But Paul didn't just want God's glory in what he did and said. Notice secondly, he wanted God's people to love one another and get along. Verse 21, salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren are with me, greet you. Uh, All the saints salute you. You see, when we read the word salute in our Bible, it's linked with the word salutations rather than a hand gesture uh, denoting respect like we most commonly use that word. The root word means to enfold in the arms. Uh, Three times in the New Testament it says, greet one another with an holy kiss. That greet is the same as salute. Listen, there has always been some kind of special affection that is supposed to exist between the people of God and especially the people we are together with in the body of Christ. It's always been that way, still should be that way. There's always some kind of practical expression of Christ's exhortation to us to love one another like He loved us. And there still should be. Uh, A few years ago, we went on a mission trip to Spain, had a lot of fun uh, there, got to see a lot of cool things, got to see Latithia's culture, and got to make fun of a lot of things that I seen there, and angered her a, a little bit with me being petty, and, and those kinds of things, but one of the things in the Spanish culture, when you greet somebody you know, you, you like kiss them on the, each cheek, or you fake kiss them. In, in America, in America, you know, we don't do that. We shake hands. We smile. Maybe if it's somebody close to us or someone we're close to we haven't seen in a while, we may give them a hug. But Paul wanted this expression 
of affection to be displayed between the people of God there. Uh, so many things throughout this letter show how Paul wanted them as the body of Christ there in Philippi to be together. Remember some of them? Look at chapter 1 and verse 27. He says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Did you see those expressions of being in one spirit, one mind, striving for the faith of the gospel instead of striving with one another? I hope you're not somebody who's striving with someone here at Bible Baptist Church. Forgiveness, if there's a real offense or a perceived offense, really settles a lot of strife. See, when we're in one mind and one spirit, we understand that for Christ's sake we forgive. For Christ's sake, we move on. That when he said salute one another, he says, listen, I want you to get along. I want you to be in one mind. I want you to be in one spirit. I want you to express your affection for one another did something similar in chapter 2 and verse 2. He says, Fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Did you see those phrases? Like-minded, same love, one accord, one mind. These are all expressions that are linked to them getting along, being together, having affection for one another. In fact, in verse 21 in chapter uh, 4 where we were before, uh, that word salute and greet in verse 21, they're the same word. You see, believers who had the courage to associate with Paul in jail, and by the way, that was risky. I mean, he was jailed for the faith. And so if you went and saw him, or you helped him, don't you suppose your name went on a list too? And so, Paul, he says, the brethren here salute you because there were people in Rome that even though Paul was jailed and even though it was a personal risk to them, they still affiliated with them. They had an affection for Paul and Paul had an affection for the, Philipp the Philipp Philippian believers and so they had an affection for the Philippian believers through Paul. Let me ask you, are you letting the love of Christ towards God people, God's people here affect your heart? If I sat down and thought about it, and I'm not going to do it, I could write pages and pages of offenses against me, my wife, our children, against effort I made in this or that, by sometimes well-intentioned people of God and sometimes ill-intentioned people of God. And if you're going to do the work of Christ, and if you're going to follow Jesus, listen, you're going to either have to decide for Christ's sake, I am going to be loving and express that and get along, or not. Listen, everyone who comes here, they should find love as well as truth. Warmth as well as holiness. 
By, by the way, that's my prayers every, every time when I unlock the building. Uh, through every, when I unlock every door, I, I always pray the same thing. Oh God, help everybody who comes through these doors to find truth and love. That's the way it should be. Not just truth. Not just love. Both. Let me ask you, are you part of being patient here and patiently loving others? Or are you bringing the critical spirit of our culture into the Lord's church? Now, I don't know what happens to you. When I personally, maybe this doesn't happen to you, I do like to listen to talk radio. I'm not really a music person. And so if I ever do turn on the radio, I never turn on music. I like to listen to talk radio. But you know what happens to me when I listen to too much of it? I just end up this critic. And, and I just see and find fault with everything because criticism drives the news. Whether it's the left-leaning news or right-leaning news. And that is not the spirit we're to bring to the house of God. Are you part of getting along with others and helping others to do so? Are you someone who's regularly in conflict here? But Paul didn't just want people to love one another and get along. Notice thirdly, he wanted to leave a mark for Christ wherever he spent any time. Verse 22, all the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Now, I don't know what you think about when you read a comment like this. I think if I was in the church of Philippi, if I'd have read this, this would have just made me smile because I would think, that's Paul. He's jailed. He's got a ministry going on there. Uh, that's it. That is what I would have thought. He sees a prisoner awaiting judgment by Caesar, and he was likely guarded by soldiers linked some way and directly with Caesar himself or Caesar's household. By the way, the Caesar at that time was Nero. Uh, Nero was notoriously unpredictable. In fact, in a few short years, Paul was eventually released from this imprisonment that he had when he wrote the prison uh, epistles, Galatians, or Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And he was released for a while, and he was then jailed and brought back to Rome. And ultimately, it was Nero who ordered his execution. Uh, that was the Caesar's household. I mean, do, do you understand that Paul, as a prisoner, wrongly jailed, had a choice of whether he was going to be an angry prisoner or not. He had a choice of whether he was going to use his circumstances, though he did not choose them and did not like them. He was either going to use those circumstances for Christ's glory and you do whatever ministry he could, or he was just going to sit there and get nothing done because he had been done wrong. I mean, can't you see him? I mean, how much imagination does it take to see him speaking to the soldiers who guarded him? The other prisoners in the jail. Uh, and In fact, uh, the letter of Philemon is a prison epistle written from this same imprisonment. And the whole letter is about a slave named Onesimus that Paul won to Christ while he was jailed. The whole ministry in Philippi was linked around how Paul behaved when he was jailed. Do you remember the story? He was wrongly beaten publicly and him and Silas sang praises to God and prayed at midnight and God shook the jail and the Philippian uh, jailer came and said, what must I do to be saved? 
doesn't take a lot of imagination to see Paul speaking to those who brought food into the prison, to speak to family and friends of guards who came by. Listen, Paul's influence for Christ could be felt in the palace of Caesar himself. We don't usually like it. But the most powerful opportunities for our testimony are when things are going bad. It is in those times when our faith shines the brightest. It is those times when our kindness means the most. I hope you'll grow in your Christianity and in your walk with Christ to such a degree that you understand that those valleys of darkness are your greatest opportunities to shine. I'm not saying to seek them. I'm not saying to uh, go looking for them. But hey, if you're in one or God brings you in one, maybe you're there for a reason. Do you ever give a track to the police officer that pulls you over? Why not? Maybe you wouldn't be able to spout off or be as angry as you would like to be. That's what I'm talking about. Do you ever, when you're in the emergency room, you ever give the nurse or doctor a track? Listen, I'm not talking about jamming the gospel down somebody's throat. I'm just talking about you behaving yourself like a Christian whenever anything is going on so that you can smile and kindly give someone a reason for you to be smiling at a time when everybody else is mad. That's called Christianity. Let me ask you, do you have some kind of ministry and light shining in every key area of your life? Anywhere you spend some significant time. You are the minister there. Most of the people in the circle of your life, they're never going to see or hear me. You are Christ's representative to them. And all of us in any place, in any environment where we spend significant time ought to do what Paul did here, which is shine for Christ and do whatever ministry we're able to do. But Paul didn't just want to leave a mark for Christ wherever he spent crime. Fourthly, he wanted those believers to experience God's grace. Verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You see, closing out his letters with a desire for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with the recipients was common practice for Paul. He said something similar in Romans, 2 Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians, in the book of Titus, and in the book of Hebrews. I hope you understand that grace at its most basic definition is simply God giving us something good we don't deserve. Because Paul loved the Philippian believers. He wanted them to get more good than they deserved in life. By the way, I love to hear when you're doing well. I love it if you ever tell me, hey, I got promoted. Hey, uh, you know, I, I got a new house. Uh, it, yeah, it's two hours away. I'm leaving. That doesn't, that doesn't help me. Hey, preacher, we got a new house. It's closer to church. That helps me. Listen, he wanted the people around him to experience and recognize God's grace in their life. 
Listen, every one of us here has way more good in our life than we deserve. And we are either going to focus on the things in our life that are worse than we think they des- we deserve, and there are always some of them, or we're going to focus on things in our life that are much better than we really deserve. But as I said earlier, I want to go back to the most recognizable promise in this particular section of the Scripture, and I just want to spend maybe five minutes talking about how God usually supplies the needs for His people. That's verse 19. This is in the context of finances. Remember, He told him, He said, you sent unto my need once and again when I was in Thessalonica. You remember that? Thessalonica. He said, and now your care for me has flourished again, and and now Epaphrodite's brought your gift. The, the context is finances and, and, and giving. And in that context, he says in verse 19, but my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. How does God do that? And again, maybe in this room, not so much. But in general, in our world, most people think that God just sort of drops a bag of money down the chimney or you walk along and you find a hundred bucks or uh, somebody uh, in the family calls and said, hey, by the way, I know you never knew about this, but we have a rich uncle and he, he just left you 50 grand. I'm not debating that that stuff doesn't happen and that uh, God doesn't do that on occasion, but that's not normally the way God provides. How does God supply for the needs of His people? First, go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. By the way, these are not anywhere near as much fun as finding a bottle on the beach and rubbing it and having a genie come out and granting you three wishes, the first of which is $100 million. How does God supply the needs of His people? Here's the first way. By blessing us with health and opportunity to work. Now, I know that this would not preach well in American politics, but this is what the New Testament says. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Now, that's not cannot work. That's different. It says, would not work. So you could, but you won't. Verse 11, For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. By the way, laziness didn't start in 2022 in America. Uh, There in the city of Thessalonica, some of the believers there didn't work. They could work. They didn't work. They mooched food off of everybody, and they became busybodies. What's a busybody? Somebody who's in everybody else's business because you have time to do that. You know what busy people don't do? They don't have time to mess with everybody else's business. Verse 12 says, Now them that are such, these busybodies, these people walking disorderly, uh, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work (laughs) and eat their own bread. God's first way of supplying the needs of His people is by blessing us with opportunity uh, and health to work. Listen, believers who are careless with their health, easily sidelined by the normal pains of life, and unwillingly to diligently work, 
will always miss God's provision for them. Like it or not, God linked choosing to work with having enough food. By the way, that shouldn't surprise us. God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden to dress and keep the garden because work was always a part of God's plan. God not only gives us some measure of satisfaction in life through our work, but you and me choosing to work is the most basic way God supplies for His people. By the way, uh, all of this room are, are people, if I had said, hey, give testimony to how God in some way opened a door for you to work to provide for you and a family, hands would go up all over this room. How does God supply the needs of His people? Secondly, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. No, I, I, get, I know this isn't as appealing as uh, an unknown uncle sending you a check. I know that. How does God usually supply the needs of His people? He begins by blessing us with health and the opportunity to work. Here's the second way. By blessing those who handle their money the way He taught us to handle money. By the way, every area of life, every area of life has a way that faith applies or is ignored. There's a way faith applies to what we do on Sunday. There's a way faith applies to how we handle our marriage and children. There's a way faith applies to how we handle our morals. But listen, there's a way faith applies to literally everything that happens in our life, and we are either going to apply our faith in Christ and what God has said, or we're going to ignore it. And so it should be not surprising there's a way faith applies how we handle our money. Um... By faith, obedient believers pay the first tenth to the storehouse, to the church where God has placed us. I wouldn't have a cow about the terminology of pay versus give, but technically since tithing is a command, we don't give our tithe, we pay our tithe. By faith, obedient believers give generously then rather than sparingly, and this is one of the ways God provides for us. And 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, but this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Notice God cares how much you give, whether it's generous or not, and God cares your attitude when you give. If you're an angry giver, that doesn't please the Lord. The Lord is looking for a cheerful giver. Oh, no, there goes my tithe. Oh, no, this Sunday's building fund Sunday. Oh, no. Why do you do that? Why do you live your life that way? And no wonder you're so miserable. Listen, because we all reap what we sow, there's no way to receive all the financial benefits God would give us without obediently tithing and being generous with what He's already entrusted to our care. In case you didn't notice, our choices are very important when it comes to God's provision for us. God supplies by blessing us with health and work. He blesses us by handling our money the way He taught us to handle our money. And lastly, go to Proverbs 21. How does God supply all our need according to His riches and glory 
by Christ Jesus. Hey, listen, I, I know that there's probably pro people all over this room that have gotten an unexpected phone call and somebody paid some bill that you had and God took care of you that way. Thank God for that. That does happen. I've had it happen. But that's not normally the way God supplies our need. We work. We handle our money like He taught us to handle our money. We tithe. We generously give to others. How does God supply the needs of His people? Here's the third way. By giving us wisdom to build self-control to manage what we have left over. <laughs> Proverbs 21, verse 20. There's treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. Notice you, if you're wise, what's in your house? Treasure and oil. That means you didn't spend it all up. Uh, that means if you're foolish, you do spend it all up. You see, the character quality of self-control helps us in every area of life. That's why we need to build it in ourselves and teach it to our children. But having self-control is especially helpful in our spending habits. Um, I would hope most everyone here learned at a very young age that it's much easier to spend money than earn it. Most of us should have learned at a young age that the things we want in a moment far exceed our ability to purchase them. Maybe this doesn't happen to you, but every time I go in Bass Pro Shops, I mean, man, I, I see 50 things I'd love to have but don't need. Now, you pick whatever area of life is appealing to you, and it's the same, I'm sure. We're all people of like passions. But hear me when I say even if we decided to give 15% instead of 10%, and if we gave another 10% of our income in offerings so that we gave 75%, hear me, that God couldn't give us enough money if we blew and mismanaged the 75% we had left over. You and I must, if we are going to have God's provision for our needs in life, we must learn how to manage our money. By the way, God gives us a choice in how we spend it. I do not believe that if you don't tithe, you will be poor. I don't believe that if you tithe, you become rich. I don't believe that either. I believe if you tithe, you will always have more. And if you don't tithe, you will always have less. So how do you prove that, God? <laughs> you really think you're going to do better in life disobeying God? Come on. Come on. I do believe anybody who handles their money the way we've been taught will have God supply all their need. And all over this room are people who would testify to God making sure you had all your needs met and then some. Because when it come to handling your money, you did what he taught us. Because see, that's what our loving Father does. He supplies all our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Do your part. And God will do His. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.